Father, we celebrate the birth of your son this season, as we do every year. And Father, perhaps more than most years, we're so thankful that you brought yourself into this world to correct and to rescue us out of what is a difficult place at times, Father. Filled with sin, filled with challenges of one kind or another, disappointments of so many kinds. And thankfully, Father, this is not the only world we will ever know, and that because of your son, because he came into this world, he has given us a way to come out of it in a day to come. We thank you for that hope. And I thank you, Father, for a church that proclaims this truth without hesitation and without delay, without variation. I thank you for the men and women who've come here gathered under your name and under your calling to learn at your feet. I pray, Father, that our teaching today would edify, that you would work in the hearts of those who hear it, that you'd bring us something good and truthful and perhaps new. And Father, more importantly, I pray that you would help each of us in our own way walk out what we learned today in a way that glorifies you, especially in this season. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, if you have been keeping track, if you've been here with us for a while. Uh, we've been doing this study for, yeah, a little while. A few weeks, a few months. Meanwhile, we're here to study. We're in the end of the chapter 27 of Matthew. That's where we pick up where we left off, so open your Bibles there with me. We already prayed, so I'm going to launch into the teaching this morning to give you some context for where we have been. Time is running out to get Jesus' body off the cross and into the tomb before sundown on this Passover. I've been showing you a chart now off and on for a while. I'll put it back up. We're going to do a few charts today. And if you remember the timeline, at 6 p.m. at the end of any given day in Jewish reckoning, a new day starts. And so today being Passover, that means that at 6 p.m. Passover ends and the next day technically begins. That next day is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as we learned already, the first and last days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread are designated in Scripture as High Sabbaths. A High Sabbath is a day that is designated as a Sabbath, even though it doesn't necessarily fall on the normal weekly Sabbath of a Saturday, starting Friday night, Saturday. So every day after a Passover is always a Sabbath, regardless of what day of the week it falls on. John told us that in the year of Jesus' death, it was a High Sabbath day that followed Jesus' death on Passover, and since in this particular year Passover fell on a Thursday, that means that not only is the day after Passover a Sabbath, as it always is, but then the normal weekly Sabbath comes along the very next day, which in this case means that in the year Jesus died, there was a double Sabbath, a back-to-back Sabbath, and that will happen from time to time because the day of the week for these celebrations moves around from year to year. Sometimes it lands on a day that creates a double Sabbath. But here's the issue. Once that double Sabbath began, all, week, all work would have ceased in observance of the day of rest, which means that the work of preparing a body for burial would cease. And Jesus' disciples, the few that are still with him at this point, they can't bear the thought of leaving Jesus hanging, exposed on a cross for two full days before they could get back to the work of burying him. So they are now desperately searching for a way to get Jesus off the cross to prepare his body and get him into a tomb before sundown on that Thursday, which is roughly at 6 p.m. Now just the fact that they even have this chance, that is the fact that there is still time available on Thursday to put him in the grave, that in itself was unusual because most victims of crucifixion lasted a good day or more before they died. 
Eventually, they'd succumb to shock or fatigue or asphyxiation. But, in fact, if that process went on for too long, the Romans would get tired of waiting, and they'd break the legs of the prisoner because if you didn't have the, the legs to push up on in order to get a breath, you were hopelessly hanging without the ability to breathe, and suffocation was a matter of minutes at that point. But Jesus gave up his spirit at 3 p.m., which is then why he died. And that meant that a Passover burial, in his case, was technically possible. I mean, there was enough time left to try to get it done before the Sabbath. Now, that in itself is a fulfillment of Scripture because in Exodus chapter 34, where God gives Israel the prescription for how to keep the Passover, he tells them that the lamb that was used for the meal of the family on Passover had to be completely consumed before the end of Passover. If they didn't eat it all, they had to burn what was remaining so that as Passover ended, There was no evidence that the lamb had ever existed, if you will. That is a picture, like the whole of the Passover for that matter, is a picture of Christ in that by the time Passover ends, the lamb of God will be out of sight. No one will be able to see him anymore. He'll be buried. So we know God intends to put his son in a tomb before the end of the day in keeping with the picture of Passover, but there are several hurdles standing in the way of getting that done today. First... There are very few disciples around to carry out the work, and they're all women. Look at the first verse that we studied today, verse 55. It says, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Matthew tells us that there were very few disciples still with Jesus at this point. And he mentions women only. Specifically, he mentions three Marys. You have uh, Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And we know from the other Gospels, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also there. So there were three Marys there, plus uh, another woman, Salome. That's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So given the male-dominated culture of this day, it is particularly shameful to find only women there. Now, certainly we're taking nothing away from the women. They're to be commended. The problem is, where are the men? Where's the courage of the men to still be on Jesus' side? And the absence of men at this point is significant because it stands in the way of a 6 p.m. burial. That is, it's an impediment to getting Jesus off the cross. These few women did not have the physical strength to remove nails from the wood, to carry, to hold his body and bring it down from the cross and do the rest of the work on their own. They're going to need the help of at least one or two men to step forward and be part of the process if they're going to get him in the grave by sundown. So that's the first barrier. That's the first challenge. Secondly, they have to get permission because the Romans technically have authority at this point over every condemned prisoner, including Jesus. And so someone, particularly Pilate, would have to authorize that the family members or the friends of the deceased take custody of his body and bury him. And Rome was not inclined to do that. Romans preferred to let crucified prisoners rot on the cross for days, weeks even, because that's part of the deterrent, right? That's one of the terrible aspects of crucifixion that they wanted to have on display. So it's going to take someone with political clout It's going to take someone who can stand before Pilate and convince him it's in his best interest to let Jesus go. And then finally, the third challenge. (laughs) They've got to find a place to bury him. 
You know, that's not easy to do. That's probably the hardest problem, in fact, to solve. Grave sites were owned by families. You had to purchase a lot of land. You had to have uh, control of it. You had to set up a, a place for burial, either in a cave or sarcophagus. You had to work that out. And for someone like Jesus, who was itinerant, who didn't live in Jerusalem, didn't have family in Jerusalem, no one owns any property in his name. There's no family waiting to bury him when he dies. In fact, the tradition of the time was if you were a traveler, a sojourner who died in Jerusalem, your body was just thrown out into the Hinnon Valley because you were just disposed with the rest of carcasses that way. So finding someone to arrange the purchase of land and to have the money to do so and to carry out that transaction in the next two or three hours, I mean, that's practically impossible. Any one of these three impediments was enough to think that there's no way to bury him. You put all three together and it literally would be impossible to think that you could bury someone in the time that remains. But of course, that which is impossible for man is possible for God. And because God had every intention of his son being buried before sundown, he makes the way possible. And the most remarkable aspect of this story is that he solves all three problems with the same guy. So as the minutes tick away, the situation gets ever more desperate, that one man steps forward. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So in verse 57, Matthew says, it was now evening. Now notice that. That word in Hebrew refers to the final hour in the daylight of that day, what we might call twilight. So the Sabbath is fast approaching. There's time, there's no time to waste at this point. So Jesus is still on the cross, barely an hour before the end of the day, dead. And the women who've been trying to figure out how to solve this problem, they no doubt are out pleading with anyone, can you help us? Let us get this problem solved. And I'm going to imagine here for a moment anyway that there might have been a few male disciples, maybe not the apostles, but maybe some others, followers of Jesus, hanging around maybe on the outskirts, checking the scene out, hearing the pleas of the women, thinking to themselves, should I help? You know, if they step forward, they're exposed. They are now known as a Jesus sympathizer, and that is a great risk to them. There was real reason to fear the religious leaders of that time, and they would have taken note of anyone who would have walked into that situation and helped put the man that they wanted dead into a proper burial. Being known as a disciple of Jesus would have almost certainly brought about some kind of persecution. A man and his family might have been ostracized from Jewish culture. They may have lost their livelihood. They may have lost their home. They may have lost their lives if they stood forward to help Jesus. And that's what makes what happens next even more remarkable. Matthew says a rich man. And in Greek, the word rich is placed in the point of emphasis within the Greek grammar, so it's emphasizing a really rich man, a man of great power, of great influence, we find out, steps forward to assist these women. His name is Joseph from Arimathea. Arimathea is the traditional home of Samuel, the place of his burial. It's about 21 miles or so outside Jerusalem. And the other gospel writers give us a little more detail on this guy. We find out that Joseph, not only was he rich, he was a Pharisee. He was 
one of those men of that group that was trying to put Jesus to death, only he didn't agree with that. Moreover, he's on the Sanhedrin. He's on the very ruling council of Pharisees and Sadducees responsible for the condemnation of Jesus. And he, along with another Pharisee named Nicodemus, you maybe remember him from John chapter three, these two men, we find out in scripture, were secret disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus, no doubt, came to faith after that encounter in John three. Somewhere else along the way, Joseph did, maybe out of Nicodemus' influence, who knows? But over the last couple of years, these two guys have followed Jesus from a distance while at the same time remaining loyal Pharisees, at least outwardly so. Perhaps they told themselves, you know, we can do more good for Jesus here on the council than if we make our allegiance known and get kicked off. Or maybe they thought that they could influence their fellow Pharisees over time. Maybe they thought they could begin to win them over to Jesus and convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising if those things were on their mind, but just based on the fact that here at this moment they are still maintained secrecy, even up to this moment, that would tell me that they've been trying to have their cake and eat it too. That is, they've been trying to retain their positions of power and authority in their life, and at the same time, they wanted to be devoted to their Messiah. They expected to be received warmly into the kingdom for having come to faith in him and having been his disciple. They wanted to find the way that they could make what they had in this world fit with what they wanted in the next. They wanted their cake, and they wanted to eat it too. But Jesus has told us repeatedly, I'm sure they heard these things when they were with him, that you cannot seek unity with this world and at the same time be preparing for the next. You can't. Jesus sums it up this way. Mark 8, 34, he says, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. Now Jesus says it. we studied this in a passage of Matthew earlier in this study, but I can summarize it for you simply. Jesus says, If your priority in this life is to save this life, and of course what he means is to preserve your way of life, to preserve what life means to you, how you see yourself in life. When you say to yourself, I like my status, I like my wealth, I like my comforts, I like my achievements, I like the world I've constructed for myself, the life I have, in other words, I like it. And I don't want to see it change. I don't want to lose any of it. I don't want to have to give up any of it. I don't want to have to sacrifice any of it. Jesus says, if you make that your priority, saving that life, you will lose a life to come. Now, he is not speaking soteriologically. It's not a salvation conversation. He's talking about one way of life versus the next way of life. One way of reward versus the next way of reward. One thing you can achieve and obtain versus another thing you can achieve and obtain. None of this has anything to do with salvation. We're talking here about the type of lifestyle that God will provide for us in the kingdom to come as a reward for our service to him now. We typically call it eternal reward. Jesus says you cannot simultaneously work for the rewards of this life and be working for the rewards of the next life because here's why, the work involved in those two things are opposite work. They can't be the same work. The same thing that buys you reward here is not going to get you a reward in the heaven, in, in the, uh, the next life, and vice versa. When you serve Jesus, there's sacrifices you make here. 
That's inevitable. You have to pick one. You have to be willing to lose one of these lives to gain the other one. And I'll tell you, when you look at the scriptures, Jesus always puts the conversation of discipleship into this either-or proposition, always. Have you not remembered things like this, when he says, you're either following him or you're following or chasing after the world? Or he says, either you're seeking to please Jesus or you're seeking the approval of men. Or he says, you serve God or you serve wealth, you cannot serve two masters. Remember these things? There's always this dichotomy. It's always an either-or because the things that make you wealthy here do not impress God. Necessarily, I'm not saying you can't be rich and go to heaven, of course. What I'm saying is the kind of time and effort and focus that it takes to be successful in this world is stuff that does not advance the kingdom, usually. And the kind of thing that advances the kingdom will often take you away from the kind of work that makes you money, usually. And that's the dilemma. Joseph and Nicodemus were good men. In fact, the the Bible calls them righteous men. But until this moment, I would argue, they were trying to have both. They wanted to remain on the Sanhedrin, they wanted the approval of the other Pharisees and the Sadducees, and at the same time, they wanted credit for following the Messiah. That is, they wanted Jesus to be pleased with their service. They could not have both because the council they were on wanted to kill Jesus. And there's literally no way to reconcile those two. Luke tells us in his gospel that at the moment the Sanhedrin met to convict Jesus and condemn him to death the night before, when they took that vote, it was unanimous. But we also know from Luke's gospel that these two men were not there. So what did they decide? They decided that their faith in the Messiah did not allow them to vote to condemn Jesus when they knew he was innocent. And that's to their credit, absolutely. But how did they address that dilemma? They just didn't show up. Well, I guess that's better than showing up and voting in favor, obviously. But what if they had shown up and voted against? Well, for sure they would have been known. They would have put themselves out. They would have been exposed in front of their peers and it wouldn't have gone well for them, no doubt. It wouldn't have altered the course, we know, because God intended his son to die, we get that. But they didn't know that. That is, when they decided not to be there, they had another choice. That's the challenge that faces every disciple of Jesus. We are all called out of this world by our faith, but at the same time, we remain in this world for a time. That's the the nature of discipleship. And as such, it presents a dilemma. The dilemma is this. Which of these two worlds are we gonna serve? The one we're in now or the one we know we're going to? And... There will be times in every walk and in every day of our life when we face little moments, sometimes big ones, but more often little ones, in which we see the dilemma, we see the choice, we understand how our time, talent, and treasure can be divided one way or the other, and we have to decide which one is gonna get our time now, which one's gonna get our attention. Serving the world generally means agreeing with the world, uh, approving what the world approves, thinking like the world thinks, seeking that the world would accept you. And it then means things like the way you conduct your marriage, the way you conduct your kid raising, the way you follow your career, the way you build your business. All of those things will take on a certain style depending on whether or not you care what the world thinks or whether you care what God thinks. I mean, it's, it's the, the nature of what it means to be a Christian. So Jesus said you have to be willing. He didn't say you will lose. He didn't say you have to be poor or that you're gonna end up seeing your life you know, go down the toilet. He's not saying it's a given. But he says you have to be willing to lose this life if that's what's necessary to maintain your proper witness and service to Christ. But when you do that, he says, you're gaining something far better. 
There is a trade-off. It is not an all-lose. It is a lose-to-win strategy. You have to make different choices than the world makes. You have to inevitably offend the world at times. And when the world turns against you, you accept that. Following Jesus may very well mean that at times you lose a few friends. You lose a promotion. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe even lose your life if you happen to live in places of the world where that's prone to happening. That's the dilemma, and we all face it. Which is why, if you remember, Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a rich man so that you would understand that even if we want to say he's coming to the party a little late, and that's perhaps unfair on my part, but even if that's true, look, the guy stepped forward when the time mattered most. He will likely lose his place on the council. He will likely lose his place in Jewish society. He will almost certainly lose the respect of his peers. He may even lose his means of support. I don't know if he knew for sure what was going to happen, but you did not have to be a genius to know that if you aligned yourself with the guy that your peers just killed, they're not going to be very happy about that, right? But he does it. He steps forward here. And you know, as he does it, did you know he's fulfilling Scripture? I'm not sure if he knew this. Isaiah 53, 9 says that when the Messiah comes, he will die amongst criminals, which we've just seen happen, but goes on to say he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. He'll be buried among the rich. So Joseph is God's way of fulfilling that scripture, and as it turns out, he is the answer to all three of the challenges that are in standing in the way of Jesus being buried. This is the guy God appointed to solve this problem. And in verse 58, it says he steps forward. First, he goes before Pilate. He asks for permission to claim the body, and he gets him to remove him from the cross. Now, look at this. If, I want you to consider for a moment who could have gotten that permission. May I say to you, the only man in Jerusalem who could have done it was Joseph. That is to say, how many people had the influence he had and were on Jesus' side? And, by the way, had a tomb. This man goes before Pilate, and Pilate remembers it was the Sanhedrin council who was most vehemently demanding Jesus' death. They couldn't stand the thought of Jesus living another day. Now they've gotten their way. He's on the cross. If anyone else had come to Pilate and said, we want his body off the cross, let's treat it nicely, Pilate's first thought would be, I don't want to have to deal with the council again. I don't want to have those same guys show up here and complain that I let someone take the body. But when a member of the council itself shows up and says, I'll take the body, now Pilate's like, well, I guess they don't mind then. It's okay. He's the one guy. Maybe him and Nicodemus are the only ones who could have possibly worked this out, and he's the guy. Secondly, as he gets the body, it says he is able to remove him from the cross. Verse 59, Joseph personally attends, along with Nicodemus, to the removal of the body from the cross. And then with the women's help, we're told elsewhere, he helps prepare the body for burial, and he wraps them, the body with linen. Now, in normal way of preparing a body, you would wrap the body intermixed with layers of spice, powder spice, spice that's designed to desiccate the body, remove the liquid to dry the body out over time. And in the case of this burial, they're running out of time. There is no time to buy and, and retrieve spices and do all that prep. They're lucky to have any chance at all to, to even wrap him. So they wrap him with linen with no spice, and that's it. Temporary, they're planning to come back and finish the job after the Sabbath. And then with Joseph's help, they're able to move the body into a tomb, and that is the final step of the process. They find a place to bury him. Now, in that day, burial was typically a two-step process over a number of years. 
It would start with a body being wrapped like this, put into some kind of cave or sarcophagus, a stone a structure, either a, 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 like a stone coffin or a cave, so that the body could just decompose. And after a period of time when the body had decomposed, they'd come back and they'd retrieve what was left, which was basically the bones. They'd put the bones in an ossuary, which is a, like a big vase, if you will, a big uh, clay container, and then the bones would be kept in that, maybe in the home or maybe buried somewhere in the ground near the home. And they did that primarily because land was hard to come by. You didn't have enough land to keep everyone buried in a cave forever, so they'd reuse these caves. They would just move bodies in and out like that. So most people were entombed in a cave that was a family cave. Maybe there'd be some other bodies in there with them, grandmothers, grandfathers, whoever. They'd be in various stages of decay maybe, and they'd have different sarcophagi in the room. Let me show you some pictures. I've taken these myself from travels in Israel. This is from a place called Bet Shirem, which is a national park now, but it's a famous place of burial in near Galilee. It's uh, a few decades after Jesus' time, but it's representative of, of a very large cave, not like what Jesus would have been in necessarily, but you'll notice they have the sarcophagi stacked in there. Uh, another place, this is uh, Herod's family tomb, which is in Jerusalem. Herod buried some of the wives he killed there and some other uh, family members. This is more representative of perhaps what Jesus would have been in, a smaller space. It still would have had multiple chambers, typically. A, a small entry chamber, maybe opening up into one or two smaller rooms for those various people to be buried. I, want, I show this picture because you notice the stone. You see the little round stone peeking out there? I'll show it to you a little better. It's right there. That stone is what's rolled in front of the, the doorway. And it's set into a channel. They dig a channel in the stone underneath it so that when it rolls, it drops in, making it very hard to push back out, sort of locking it in place. You see the size of that thing. It's not light. It's a very big stone. That's what was pushed in front of, of Jesus' tomb. Uh, a man like Joseph, who was rich, would have built himself an elaborate tomb, presumably, maybe something not quite this big, but maybe something closer to this with Notice in the wall a little space for maybe a child to be set uh, or candles or something. So there's, there's some space. This is not a, a tomb from Jerusalem, but it's just showing you kind of the look of something of that sort. His would have probably been a little smaller, but still. He would have had it carved, it says, out of the rock probably just recently. He's not planning to die soon, but it's a family thing. He's going to buy, buy it, make it, and it's ready for him when the time comes. Some have estimated that given the labor involved, this might have been as much as a $40,000 grave. To, to create something of, of any size in rock takes a lot of labor. So he's giving up a $40,000 SUV or a $40,000 boat or you name whatever, man, you, know, whatever you think is, is valuable. It's your thing, you've bought it, you're happy with it, you're pleased with it, and then next thing you know, Jesus says, can I have it? And this man just gave it up because there's, no there's no time. You can't find another tomb. So Joseph steps out of the shadows, he exposes himself publicly, and he makes a great sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice of his family and his position and his place in society, but a real financial sacrifice too, not a minor thing. He traded things of this life for rewards in the next. But I want you to notice what he gained because it's not a story of loss all by itself. It's a story of trade. First of all, by his faith in Jesus, of course, he gained eternal life. That's the starting point for everything. But in this little exchange that took place, there's a beautiful picture of that, and I doubt it's unintended. Think about it. When Jesus took the penalty for our sins, he died in our place, right? Well, in Joseph's case, 
Jesus is literally dying in his place. He's going into Joseph's tomb. He's taking over the space that was supposed to be for Joseph. Beautiful picture of what salvation really is. And secondly, for what he's done, Joseph's name now is recorded in Scripture forevermore. You know, Jesus said that when heavens and earth pass away, the word of God will not pass away. We'll still be reminiscing over all that Scripture has and whatever else follows when we get to the kingdom. And there'll be days in the kingdom when we'll talk about what Joseph did, only we'll be able to go talk to him and shake his hand. That's no small thing, you know. To be recorded in the annals of Scripture, that's no small thing. And then here's the kicker. Here's the part I love the most, and it it just sort of makes me smile to think about how God works things out. Do you realize he gave up this valuable tomb that he had just spent all this money and, and effort building for himself, and then three days later he got it back? Right? He gets to use it anyway. I, I'm not promising you that if you make a sacrifice for God, he's going to pay you back. That's not, that's not theology we want to promote. But it's not outside of God's ability to restore something that you give up. I'm not saying what will happen, but I'm saying it's possible. And it's even better than that when you think about it. You have a finite amount of resources you can give to God, whatever that resource is. You have a finite amount. And he may ask a lot of it. He may ask all of it. You need to be willing and ready to lose it if that's necessary. But it's still finite. He, on the other hand, has an infinite supply of resources that he can bring to bear on any need at any time. And again, I'm not saying he will, and I can't promise you what he'll do, but I can tell you this, you should not think that he can supply less than you can supply for yourself. So if he says make something available, make it available, I assure you, whether it's here or in the kingdom, when it's all said and done, you will not feel cheated for having served Jesus when he's asked you to. I I would just end by saying that's the power of obedience. You serve sacrificially and you become part of the story of whatever God is doing. And in becoming part of the story, you'll be blessed in one way or another. Then notice verse 61. There's this curious thing Matthew does here. If you remember at the beginning of the passage today, Matthew mentions that there are these women, Mary, so on, you know. And then he gets into the story of Joseph and then all of a sudden, verse 61, oh, by the way, there's women here again. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that he keeps focusing on the women. Why is it important to him that we see women there? And here's why. They are a chain of custody to authenticate the story of the resurrection. You know, in detective work, police work, it's important to maintain something called the chain of custody for any piece of evidence in that case so that no one can challenge the authenticity or the veracity of the, of the evidence being used at trial. So from the moment that a piece of evidence is collected until it is presented at trial, there needs to be a chain of custody, a record of who touched it, where it went, how it was handled, and so on, so that at trial you can't say that evidence is tainted, that evidence isn't trustworthy anymore, I can't believe it. So chain of custody is crucial to evidentiary success in trial. You have here the chain of custody proving the authenticity of Jesus' resurrection. Because had no one been present throughout this process, it would have been possible for someone to impugn the testimony of the disciples when they said that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected. You remember last week we read from where Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians how that story of those three elements, death, burial, and resurrection, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that that is of first importance to the church and to the theology of our faith. Those three things, without those three things, church is nothing, Jesus is nothing, salvation doesn't exist, all of this is a lie. 
He died, he was buried, he was resurrected. If we don't have a chain of custody on those three moments, someone who saw all three and was there at every crucial moment so that there's no chance we could say, well, maybe someone stole his body. Maybe somebody uh, you know, played fast and loose with something here. Maybe that piece didn't really happen. No, we have that chain of custody, thankfully, because there were two women brave enough to stick it out. These two women, if you remember at the beginning of today, they were there when Jesus died. They were watching him on the cross. They saw his body die. They were there when he was taken down from the cross. They were there when he was wrapped. They were there when he was placed in the tomb. And now we just read, they're there when they watch Joseph roll the stone in front of that grave. And you know where they are when the tomb opens? They are the two that go on Sunday morning and see the tomb open. We'll study that here in a minute. The point being, of course, that now there is a chain of custody that is unimpeachable. Now, you can believe them or not believe them. That's true with any witness. But what you can't say is that there was any moment in there where they didn't see it. They were there at every crucial moment. And that's why Matthew keeps bringing them into your view, so that you have reason to understand the veracity of what we're reading. Ironically, Jesus' enemies helped the cause of authenticity unintentionally by what they do next, and that's in verse 62. It says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm gonna rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So on the day after preparation, which is that first Sabbath, the high Sabbath, you have chief priests and Pharisees going before Pilate. Now, the chief priests belong to a group called Sadducees, and the Pharisees are the other religious group. They're basically on a spectrum from conservative to liberal. The conservative view in that day was a Pharisee. The liberal view were Sadducees, and the Sadducees had a majority on the Sanhedrin at that time, so they were the, the majority party, if you will. And part of Sadducee teaching denied resurrection. They did not believe in it for anyone. They did not believe that after your body dies that your spirit would get a new body one day. They thought that you just stay a spirit forever. So when Jesus talked about coming back to life after three days, it wasn't just the fact that they didn't like him that bothered the Sadducees. They didn't like his theology. They didn't want to see any story of resurrection take hold and gain momentum. So they say to Pilate, we remember he talked about resurrection. We really don't want to see anybody try to support that claim. Guard this place for us. And in the process, ironically, they help secure the story. They make it even more ironclad because they put a guard there who can then testify no one did anything to take the body. And secondly, they seal the stone. And the seal of that stone, however the Romans did it, made clear that the stone hadn't been moved and put back. So now it is even more believable that when the Marys come and see him on Sunday and see the grave empty, that he could have only come out from within and been resurrected. All right, so that takes us into Matthew 28. Now here's what we're gonna do in the last 15 minutes or so of the day. We're gonna go to verse one and I wanna open up with a conversation about the resurrection. We are not gonna get into the resurrection with any detail today, but what we do wanna do and what verse one allows us to do is I wanna put to rest an issue that we've addressed here from time to time concerning the day of Jesus' death. 
This last verse gives us the final piece of data that we need to conclusively conclude, conclusively decide or determine the day of Jesus' death. Let's go to verse 28, I'm sorry, chapter 28, verse one. It says, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. First, let's just note what I said a moment ago. There's those two Marys again. The women that were there at the beginning through the whole of the process are the ones who are there at the end. It says that they come to the tomb at daybreak as the sun begins to rise on the first day of the week. Now, the first day of the Jewish week is Sunday. Remember, Sabbath, Saturday, is the last day of the week. We rest on the seventh day, or Jews did. So that means Sunday is the first day. Our calendars are still the same. Sunday is our first day of the week on most calendars. So we know that they are arriving on Sunday. Now, what's interesting about this This is the only time in all of the gospel record in which any day of the week is mentioned in connection with Jesus' death. There's no other day of the week ever mentioned. One day is only mentioned, Sunday. So we have now an anchor. We know that Jesus rose before daybreak on a Sunday. That much we can fix, all right? Now, technically, the Sabbath ended the night before at 6 p.m. Remember, Saturday is Sabbath. It ends at 6 p.m. when the new day starts. So technically, at sundown on Saturday night, the Sabbath was over. But women in that day, for that matter, men as well, never left the city walls after dark. That was a very dangerous thing to do. So they would stay in the city. So at sundown, 6 p.m., they are able to go, but they don't go because it's dark. They do do one thing, though. Mark tells us this, Mark 16, 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Then very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now notice the order there. Sabbath is over, then they buy spices, then when sun comes up, they go to the tomb. Now, people see that and they wonder, how is it possible that they could buy spices between Saturday night and Sunday morning? Well, if that's a question for you, you don't understand how Jewish culture works around the Sabbath. When the Sabbath ends on a Saturday night around, say, 6 p.m., that night, everyone comes out. The shops reopen. Everyone's been basically, you know, in their house for a day observing the Sabbath. Now they're ready to party. Shops open. People flood out into the city. If you're even in Jerusalem or in Israel today, even, in the modern Jerusalem, modern Israel, you still see that behavior. All the malls reopen at sundown on Saturday night. All the stores open and everybody makes a big night of shopping. They, they enjoy the evening. So Mary and, and Salome would have left their home at 6 p.m., gone to the shops in the city, bought the spices, knowing that the next morning, when the sun came up, they'd be prepared to go to the tomb and continue the embalming process. But when they arrive at daybreak, it says they find it empty. Now, as I said, we're gonna study more of the resurrection in weeks to come. But for now, verse one of Matthew 28, it fixes the day of his resurrection, which then allows us, with what we already know, to, quote, do the math and arrive conclusively on which day Jesus died. So let me use some graphs to show you that. We're gonna walk through this uh, in a couple of steps. First, I've shown you this slide for many times. And as you've seen this, you've probably wondered, some of you have wondered, well, he keeps putting the Passover on Thursday. I thought he died on a Friday. And I've let that go for now because I didn't have the verse to show you why I knew it was Thursday. Now I'm gonna show you that, all right? So let's zoom in on the four days around the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's zoom in on that piece of this week, Thursday through Sunday. Now I have that lined out today in the way that I've been teaching it. 
Passover was Thursday, the high Sabbath on Friday because the first day of Feast of Unleavened Bread, followed by the weekly Sabbath, as every week has it, on Saturday. And we know the scripture says Jesus resurrected before daybreak. By the time they get there, as the sun is coming up, he's already out. So sometime in the wee morning hours of Sunday, before sunup, Jesus resurrected. That tells us that as we look at days and count days, we are gonna stop at the point of his resurrection. We have this one verse from Matthew that gives us the number of days that we need to count. This is our math verse, I like to call it. This is where we get our math from. Jesus himself said that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, that phrase, three days and three nights, understand what that means. That means periods of dark and periods of light. Three periods of dark, three periods of light. Now, it does not require that he spend the whole of a period, just that his time in the grave includes at least part of three darks and three lights, so to speak. So let's put our chips on the board. We're gonna play a little game here. So we have three days and three nights that have to fit in the timeline of Jesus' death and resurrection. And for fun, let's start with the traditional view. I'm gonna move Passover. We we know we don't count the daytime on Sunday because he's out of the grave before daytime on Sunday. So the daylight of Sunday is not part of the three. He's already out of the grave before daylight. So let's start with this. Let's put Passover on Friday, which is how it's traditionally viewed. Let's dole out the chips. Well, we end up with a problem, don't we? Now, some try to solve this problem by putting the third day on Sunday. They count that daytime. All right, do that if you want. You still end up with one missing. There's no way physically to put three nights between his death on Thursday and his resurrection on Sunday. Zero way to do the third night. So you end up with these extra chips. That means that ain't the right math. Let's, uh, you're enjoying my graphics, I'm glad. You paid nothing for that extra graphic quality. Let's try it my way. Let's reset the board, and let's try for a Thursday burial, and no surprise, all of a sudden, all the chips work. Now, I wanna say something real quickly here. There are some for whom this is a shock and a problem. There are those that I've read who have worked very hard to try to reconcile this issue by keeping a Friday as the day of death and coming up with creative ways to count the three days and three nights. But here's the shame of it. There's no need to do that. There is nothing about this that violates anything in Scripture. There's, scripture never says what day he dies on, number one. Not specifically. You have to figure it out. Number two, there is no theology of the Christian faith. There is no teaching of the New Testament. There is no principle of our Christian, te- uh, Christian beliefs that depends on a Friday death. It is purely tradition. Tradition that came about as a result of a misunderstanding of the Jewish Sabbath. When somebody read that Jesus' day after he died was a Sabbath, they ran to the weekly Sabbath as their thinking, never dawned on them that the day after the Passover is always a Sabbath because it's always the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, whether it's observed or not as such by any particular group of Jews at any particular point in history, that's not the point. God follows the law whether we do or not. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts the next day. So I have no reason not to abandon a Friday day except two things. There's only two reasons why I would hold to a Friday death in light of what Scripture says conclusively. Pride and tradition. Pride and tradition. That is it. 
Because you were always someone who did Good Friday? Because you were always someone who was told it was Friday? Because you're someone who believes it's Friday? Or because you just don't like being wrong? Now, I have a saying. You may have heard me say this from time to time, but I have a saying. The saying I have is that I'd rather know the truth than be right. I'd rather have, know the truth than be right. Why is that important? Well, let me say it this way. Being right in the face of obvious evidence to the contrary requires being stubborn, clinging to ideas or opinions when better information comes along merely to maintain face, to maintain your personal pride. And if you think that every time you open your mouth you're right, talk to your spouse. But look, I like to be right. We all like to be right. But here's the thing. I would rather know the truth than be right. I'd rather know the truth because this is what's gonna happen for all of us. One day we all stand before Jesus. When we're in his presence, we get to know the truth about everything. Which also then means we get to know everywhere that we were wrong. Now, without penalty, without, without any kind of ramification, I'm not saying there's anything to worry about, but I am saying, wouldn't it be better to show up in that moment with less wrong? I think that's the goal of the Christian walk, is it not? Both in knowledge and in comportment, right? Isn't it to show up with less wrong than you could have? And so if you give me two choices, if my choice is to think I'm right now and then to find out I'm wrong in front of Jesus, or you show me I'm wrong now and I change my mind. And then I get to show up in front of Jesus and I was right because I agreed with his scripture. You give me those two choices, I would rather know the truth than be right every day of the week. Because isn't that what teaching is all about? Isn't it, when you think about the process, isn't teaching supposed to be someone brings you something you didn't already know so that you can change your mind to what you've learned? Isn't that the point of teaching? Do you realize what the Bible says, if all you get is teaching that agrees with what you already know, the Bible calls that tickling ears and says it is a characteristic of the last day's church, a church that gets so pridefully full of itself that it says, I am rich and in need of nothing, when it does not know that it is miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and as a result does not receive the counsel of the word because it doesn't agree with what they already think. Now, I would assume for the most part, those of you who are in here are not in that boat. I'm not preaching for the most part to those who are unwilling to give up on a Friday. For Many of you may have already done it. Many of you may not care. And let's be honest, this doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, in the big scheme of things, does it matter what day he died on for our sake? I think it matters that we always try to get scripture right. But I'm saying, if you happen to be wrong on this point, you're not going to hell, you're not less of a church member, you're not, I mean, those things don't matter, right? But here's why I think it is important. To me, it is a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. It's a bit of a litmus test. Because it doesn't matter, if you're not willing to change your mind on something this insignificant in the face of incontrovertible proof, what does that say about your teachability in more important matters? That's where I think this has some value. If you find yourself sitting there right now struggling with this, I wish you would shut up, I wanna leave, I'm not really that interested, boy, that man's full of himself, well, then you're probably my wife, in which case, <laughs> she's with the kids, so I can say that right now, and hopefully she'll never watch this, but anyway, if, if you're feeling that way right now, that should worry you. Now, if you're someone who sits there and goes, I see it, makes sense, I get it, works for me, 
I'm not saying you're right, uh, that, that, I, that you're better off because you agree with me. That's not the point. I'm saying you clearly have a teachable heart because you saw it, you understand it, you recognize it, you walk with it. You shouldn't take anything I say out of hand. You should always test it against scripture. But when the scriptures affirm it, fine, go with it. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't care what the scripture says or you're willing to just forget what you learned because it's not what you thought coming in, be worried about that for your own sake. Doesn't bother me. I mean, in the sense that I'm not changing my future whether you believe this or not, but I think it should worry you. It should worry you that you have a gut instinct reaction against new knowledge because it violates what you thought walking in. That's a dangerous proposition because although this doesn't matter, what will happen when you open Ephesians 5 and the counsel is how to be a better husband or wife? Or what happens when you open up uh, you know, first Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians and he starts talking about how you're supposed to give your money to the church or how you're supposed to do something in service to Jesus or when it talks about how you're supposed to conduct yourself in this affair or that affair or this situation. When you get to those moments, if you haven't been able to deal with this, God help you in those moments. That's the thing we're talking about. That's why this matters. Teachability is a fundamental Christian value. You are not, I am not, all right as I walked in. I'll get better as I go, but I have to change to get there. Let me finish with one little piece of trivia you might find interesting. Because we now fix the day of his death and we know it was a Passover, that is, he dies on a Thursday that was also a Passover, and because we have some other data in Scripture concerning his birth and the years of his ministry, I can tell you the exact calendar date that he died. Let me show you how that works. We know it was a Thursday, so... This is a timeline starting from about 6 BC, going all the way out till 35 AD. Let's put what we know from Scripture on this timeline. Jesus was born roughly one to two years before Herod died. Herod died in 4 BC. We know he was at least one or two because when the Magi came to visit him, the Scriptures make clear they, they didn't visit an infant, they visited a toddler. So somewhere in around 5 to 6 BC, Jesus was born. Add to that the fact that he was starting ministry at age 30, according to Luke. Add to that that he ministered for three years when you count the number of Passovers that took place in the time of the Gospels. So putting all that together, he died by necessity, either at 27 AD at the earliest or maybe 28 AD at the latest. Now that raises a really interesting opportunity for us. We just need to look at astronomical um, tables tables of moon, celestial movements in the heavens, and look, when did a uh, Passover occur in those two years? Remember, Passover is the first full moon after the spring equinox every year. Because it's based on where the movement of the moon is, we can calculate that very accurately for any date in history. So I just need to go back and look, when did a full moon happen after the equinox in the years around 27 and 28 AD? And if I see it happening such that Passover is falling on a Thursday, then everything lines up, right? Let me show you what I mean. These are tables taken from the Naval Observatory. They keep records on celestial movements, etc. So as an example on this one, it might be hard to read, but this one shows you for years BC, 25 BC, 24 BC. This is far earlier than Jesus. I'm just using it as an example. So in the year 25 BC, the, first, the full moon after the equinox came on April 3rd at 4 a.m. That was a Thursday in that particular year. You see how that works? All I gotta do is go down this chart from B.C. 25 all the way down to A.D. 27 or A.D. 28, and I'll see when did the full moon happen in that year. Now, if my theory, if my teaching is correct, 
then on the 27, year of 27 or 28 AD, one of those two years, the full moon would have come on what day of the week? Not a trick question. It didn't start on a Thursday. Passover starts the night before at 6 p.m. The full moon has to happen on a Wednesday. Did everybody lose anybody yet? So days in Jewish reckoning start at sundown. So Wednesday night, the Passover started. Jesus died the next day, Wednesday, the Thursday daytime. But the Passover has to start on a Wednesday for the Thursday to be Passover. Follow me? So I'm looking for a Wednesday full moon on one of those two years. Now, if I couldn't have found one, you think we'd be doing this? <laughs> All right, so we're looking at the day of the week. Let's go to the, that time in the timeline. This is now AD, 21, 22, 23. Look at all the Wednesdays that occur anywhere on this chart. Only four times in that whole period are full moons on a Wednesday when we need it, and sure enough, on the 27th, we get our full moon on Wednesday, just as we should, to match up with everything else we just learned. Jesus died on April the 9th, AD, or April 10th, the next day, Thursday. A.D. 27. Everybody got why? Thursday is the next day after the, tw- after the ninth. And what that means is, very interestingly, a little trivia for you, the 2,000th anniversary of his death is April 22nd, 2027, seven years away. Why is it not April 10th? Because it's a lunar-based calendar, so the Passover in that year comes on April 22nd. But mark your calendars. We will have a very special Easter on April, if we're all here, on April 22nd, 2027. All right. Look, I, I geek out on this stuff. You've heard me say that before. Maybe it's not so important to some of us, and if so, that's fair. That's fine. Just maintain a teachable heart, and you, you will get what God wants you to have when the time is right for what he needs you to do in service to him. And we'll all grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Give us all teachable hearts, Father, myself included. When we are wrong, help us to see truth. We'd much rather know the truth, Father, than think we're right when we're not. But Father, when we have the truth, give us humility, patience, and love, and a soft voice, so that when you give us opportunity to share it, Father, we do it in a way that encourages and comforts and teaches others, never, Father, in a prideful way, never in a way that turns people away from your truth, but only in a way, Father, that delights them and gives them reason to want to spend more time in it. And Father, most of all, help us to live our life here with a willingness to lose it because we desperately want, Father, the life that is coming. We want the richness and the fullness thereof, and we want to please you in the meantime. Help us to know the right way to do that, each in our own way. And we thank you, Father, for a church that makes it possible for us to know these things and to live them out. Bless our time this week as we get closer to the holiday, Father. Keep us safe, Father, as much as your will would provide. Help us, Father, to be ready to celebrate together on Christmas Eve. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.